you know, there's an emergency, present to the plane in 15 minutes and you have to go. You kind of feel like a spy sometimes when you go in them. It's definitely not, you know, like a large commercial jet. Two, four, two, heavy responding, code one. We're hailing a lady unconscious. Topic approach one, three, two, zero. Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. It's not only is it an emergency in respect to what the patient's going through, but it's an emergency in respect to how time poor we are. And we need to be careful as well with the engine not potentially not starting once we load it all up. Australia is a big place, some 7.69 million square kilometres, which puts us close to the landmass of the continental United States. Yet our population is only 25 million compared with their 331 million. Around two-thirds of Australia's population live around the coastal regions, with the remainder living in regional, rural and remote parts of this large continent. So it's not surprising that the vast distances of our inland interior can present challenges for the provision of national health care. For many medicos who've never lived in the country, the prospect of setting up practice in a somewhat isolated community and having to be a generalist who can deal with anything that walks in the door can be a bit daunting. Interestingly, RFDS research into health workforce trends in country Australia and the projections for the next 10 years ahead shows it's not that we don't have the volume of doctors and nurses trained or in training, but they tend to be distributed in the wrong locations based on need, with an oversupply in our cities and a very poor supply in rural and remote areas. And this is also very evident when the RFDS is advertising for medical clinicians for RFDS fly-in and fly-out services. Harry Gaffney is in his second last year of medical school at the Flinders University in South Australia. He is currently on a 12-month rural placement working in community health and he has long had the passion to be a doctor and to help people. As part of Harry's training, he spent a number of weeks on medical placement with the Royal Flying Doctor Service and this has really changed his ideas and his thinking about provision of health and about his own future. G'day Harry. Hi Lana, how are you going? I'm good. I want to ask you first, when did you decide to become a doctor? Ooh, that's a, that's, that's a pretty good question. Um, I mean, I, I guess I, I know I wanted to become one as soon as I, I knew that doctors existed. Um, pretty much every interaction I, I had with them when I was a kid, it was, it was awesome, you know. I'd explain my symptoms to them and you could, I guess you could see doctors thinking in like another language. And this is what I was always thinking, like, are they, what are they thinking? And then they'd spit out something in a way that, you know, you can understand. And then they'd give some advice and maybe a, like a prescription. And then you'd just eventually start feeling better. <laughs> I mean, how could you um, not be fascinated by what happens behind that process? It's, it's phenomenal. So, you know, I, I had really bad asthma as a kid and, um, I always struggled to to breathe and when I was running around, you know, the 800 metre track in, in primary school, I'd always be the one lagging behind and I went to a doctor and um, this is when I was about five years old and, you know, I explained my symptoms and, you know, they, they gave me an inhaler 
And it, it just it just fixed everything. And I think ever since then, being able to, I guess, transform people's lives is in that positive way is just such a, a phenomenal career path. And that's what really drew me to it. What was the medical training you decided to do? What is the journey? So obviously you finish high school. Mm. Um, what, what's the journey from there to become a doctor? It's a five-year um, university degree, correct? It's, it's, um, it's a little complicated. It, it's either six years at least six-year journey um, to, to become a um, junior medical officer in a hospital. So uh, for, for my personal journey for me to enter medical school, it was a bit of a longer one. I'm, I'm a mature age student. I'm 30, so I'm about five years older than most of, <laughs> most of my cohort. Um, you know, talking about family, I didn't really have a family that had the, the capacity to support me going to university. So I, I worked nonstop for about five, five or six years um, bartending and in customer services as much as I could to save up money to, to fund my journey. Um, so what happened with me is um, I saved up enough and set up a budget to, to allow me to fund my own journey. And I got into an undergraduate degree at Flinders University and um, that was in health sciences where I, I specialized in microbiology and immunology. That was a big focus of mine. That's a three-year degree. And then you apply for a postgraduate degree uh, in medicine, which is a four-year degree thereafter. And you sit some exams and you go through an interview process. And that's, that's the journey for someone that wants to get in if they don't get in straight away from high school. Gotcha. And so where are you at the moment on that training journey? Where, where do you currently exist in terms of your qualifications? Right. So at the moment, I'm in my second to last year. So I've got a, a little over a year to go until I graduate from my, my postgraduate degree. And then what happens is, is I spend two years in uh, a hospital uh, as a junior medical officer. And during that time, I basically go through something called basic physician training, where I work as a doctor, uh, but I don't have a, a specialization yet or anything along those lines. Once I've done those two years, I can choose a pathway uh, to specialize, you know, in dermatology or surgery or something, or a GP, a general practitioner, or I could continue on as a, a junior medical officer in, in the hospital uh, for as long as I want. So that's, that's how it works. It's a, it's a long journey. It, it's at least 11 years from beginning to end to become uh, a doctor with a, a specialization in something. But you grew up in the city. So what made you start to think that you would like to do um, rural generalist work rather than just becoming, you know, one of these slick super clinic doctors, you know, with the white coat that sees, you know, hundreds of people every day. Um, <laughs> what what made you sort of start to lean instead towards um, becoming a rural generalist? Well, I, that's a really good question, Lana, because I, I guess it all started out in the fact that I, I did a lot of research online as to what fields are available to, to doctors and, and where the need is. And really the, the need is in rural places where terribly under understaffed and undersaturated in rural places um, and quite oversaturated in in cities. So what you'll find is, is working in a city, you, you can definitely make an impact, but you're seeing so many patients in a short period of time and you, you're, you're probably not going to see those patients again. So it's quite a revolving door but in in rural situations and in rural fields, 
especially as a generalist, um, you can spend more time with those patients and you're, you're seeing them over the course of their life and then seeing their family members and seeing their children and birthing their children. That's where the need is. And that's what drew me to it, despite me not having any rural experience at that time. So that's what drew me to it. That makes sense. So yeah. when you're doing your training, you have to do medical placements. Could you explain what a medical placement is and how many you do as you do your training? Yeah, certainly. So basically with medicine, as I mentioned, it's a, it's a four-year degree and it's made of two preclinical years. So the first half of a preclinical and the second half are your clinical years. So the first two years, basically, you're, you're buried in books, you're taking exams and, and learning all the foundations of medicine. Um, even though it's the foundations, it's really, it's really grueling. Um, you get a really solid understanding of everything. And to do that, you probably need to spend 40 to, I mean, even up to 70 or more hours a week of studying. And, and that's outside of university. Uh, and then after that, you go through two clinical years, as I mentioned. And that's where you're out in a hospital like I am at the moment or um, general practice, like a G, your regular GP that you would see. Um, and you're actually applying those two intensive years of knowledge and really solidifying everything and putting it into practice. Uh, so what I'm doing at the moment is I'm part of what's called a parallel rural curriculum. And that's in our third year, instead of spending it at our local hospital, like Flinders Medical Center or the Adelaide Hospital or, you know, any, re any, any um, metropolitan hospital, you actually get placed out in a, a rural location. And uh, you're usually assigned to a uh, general practice where you work and you get your own office and patients come in and see you and you, you talk to them and you, you basically write a case up on them and get all their history and then you present it to a doctor and then the doctor takes over and finishes off that consult. And not only that, but you go and uh, attend surgeries. I've birthed about eight babies so far, which is unheard of. Um, yeah, so it, it's such an incredible curriculum. And, and that's how the training works. It's accumulate knowledge, then apply the knowledge, and then um, and then start working and get compensated for that um, thereafter when mm, you've graduated. It's, it's like many industries, like music and art and all those. They all have the theory and then they have the practical. And if Absolutely. you don't, your practical is inhibited to the degree that you don't understand the theory. But um, on the other hand, um, you can't just study theory alone. You must know how to put it into practice. So, exactly. It's like trying yeah. to drive a car just by learning the road rules. It's, it's, uh, the road rules, it, it's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to put it into practice. But to put it into practice, you, you, have something, you have to have something to put into practice in the first place. Yeah. So how did you end up with a medical placement with the Royal Flying Doctor Service? And can you tell me about it? Ah, so during the degree, there are lots of opportunities to get rural experience, but you really have to carve your own path. Those paths don't exist on their own. You, you really need to dig your own, own path. So I did two things. As I mentioned, the first thing is a, a parallel rural curriculum that I interviewed for in my medical degree. Um, they select a few people, about 14 people out of your 200-odd cohort to be placed out rurally, and they select the best ones uh, based on um, an interview that you do. Uh, so I was lucky enough to get that. And the other thing is there's a, a, a scholarship called the John Flynn Placement Program, uh, the JFPP. So if anyone listening is interested in, in how it all works, this is how it works. You 
also apply for a scholarship through this John Flynn placement program. And they basically give you a stipend. So they they pay you uh, to go out to rural places outside of the curriculum. So in your in your university breaks, you spend time in rural places and they, they give you some money to do that and some travel stipends. And it's eight weeks over the four years. And I spent uh, four of those weeks, so half of the time, with the Royal Flying Doctors Service uh, in late 2019, early 2020 uh, at the Port Augusta base. So that's, that's how I ended up there, um, just through pure brute force of applying for as many things as possible. And I'm really lucky to have gotten that one. What was mm. it like to fly on an RFDS plane for the first time? Oh, oh my. <laughs> so it was really exciting. Um, so the, the planes they have, I think it's called, from memory, the, the PC-12. Um, they're amazing. They're, they're really, really small. I don't even think they're one, I think they're 1.5 metres wide and they're not even 1.5 metres tall inside the cabin. Yeah, and I'm you can't over stand six up. Feet. You yeah, can't no, stand I, up in them. <laughs> I couldn't even kneel in them, to be honest. I had to army crawl my way into them sometimes <laughs> because I'm, I'm pretty tall. Um, but they're fully fitted out with stretches and um, you know all this medical monitoring equipment. So it's you kind of feel like a spy sometimes when you go in them. It's definitely not, you know, like a large commercial jet. But the thing is, because they're so small, they they can't be pressurized very well. And um, due to this, the oxygen levels can drop a little bit when you're in the plane. Um, Not enough to, you know, suffocate or anything like that, but definitely enough to make you feel a little bit drowsy if it's your first time on or even your 50th time on. Um, It takes a while to get used to. So my first time on the plane, I was really excited uh, but I ended up falling asleep within about uh, the first hour of the trip, just sitting up. And I, by the time I woke up, we'd landed. And that happened so many times, I, it, a countless amount of times. Um, it's quite a, a strange experience to be so excited, but also be so drowsy at the same time. <laughs> wow. Did it surprise you that there's such a small team that travels on flights to remote parts of the country? Oh, oh yeah. Um it's it's really unbelievable how like experienced and effective these small teams can be though. I mean, so the clinic visits that we go on, um, it's usually one or two doctors, a nurse and myself. So we do a lot of different things. I, I guess we can touch on that later, but sometimes um, allied health workers come as well, but usually it's a max team of four people plus the pilot. Um, and at times... Um, for patient transfers. So we'd fly and pick up patients from smaller hospitals and deliver them to the, the larger hospitals in Adelaide. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's a nurse uh, and myself and, and a pilot. Um, so the, the teams are incredibly small and I guess that's because the plane's small. But at the same time though, the, the team members that actually come across uh, on these planes, they've got the experience of entire teams just by themselves. Um, a couple of... A couple of amazing stories. The, the first one is um, the doctors in the clinic visits that go there, they're fantastic. Um, I saw one of the doctors in one of the clinics um, get through over 30 patients in one sitting and still have you know a genuine, meaningful conversation with each and every one of them while, while treating every patient. Um, and I think that's amazing. And the nurses that um, you know I, I flew along with, um, 
one of them, I'd, I'd come back from a, from a clinic visit and one of the nurses I'd found out had just performed um, CPR on a patient who'd had a, a, like a cardiac arrest. So their heart had stopped on the tarmac minutes ago. So when I'd landed, I'd found that out. And when I went to go and see the nurse and actually check to see if they were okay, um, she was just nonchalantly eating a sandwich and reading a book. Uh, like like it was nothing. Um, so she just saved someone's life and was just casually eating a sandwich. Like these people are made of steel, and they're. I, I can honestly say that one one team member is is probably four or five t- people strong in in respect to their experience. So that yeah, it's incredible. That's great. Were the communities welcoming when you arrived in in these remote parts of South Australia? Yeah. Look. Um, Absolutely. So when, when we landed in the communities, the time that we spent there was quite um, quite action-packed. So it, it was tough to actually, I guess, um, communicate with the community outside of a clinical setting. But the, the community that I was in, um, Port Augusta, so the one that I was actually living in uh, for the time in this placement, they were they were incredibly welcoming. I attended all of these little events. Um, I went to a lot of education sessions with the doctors, learned heaps about the community, um, a lot of Aboriginal stories I learned as well. Yeah, look, always so welcoming. Every rural placement I've ever been on and every rural town I've been in have been so welcoming. They, they send you letters saying it was great to meet you, but you can never feel alone in a community like that. Mm. Did you end up having to do any emergency flights or emergency procedures when you were doing your placement with the Royal Flying Doctor Service? Yes, absolutely. The majority of the call-outs were emergencies. So um, basically what, what happens is, is when, you, when you're um, with the RFDS, the Royal Flying Doctors, you, you have four tasks that you could be doing. One's into hospital transfers, so you take one um, one one. Uh, patient from a small hospital to a bigger one, like I've mentioned, uh, or you can uh, basically be working from the base as a general practice clinic, um, just like a regular GP clinic that you'd see every day. The Royal Flying Doctors Service offers that. Or you could fly over to a rural clinic and and basically uh, do a GP a general practice clinic in one of those places. Or you could have those emergency call-outs. And Basically, what happens is is you could be doing anything. You could be like eating some soup or reading a book or just like walking around the community or at the gym and you get a call on your phone and it'll say, you know, there's an emergency, present to the plane in 15 minutes and you have to go. A story of one of those emergencies definitely sticks out. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them.
I will never forget this story, and I love sharing it. So um, this one gave me a real taste of emergency medicine overall, not just with the RFDS. But um, so basically, there was I was at the gym. I was at the local gym at, at Port Augusta, and I was doing my final set, and I got an emergency call out to um, Roxby Downs, and this is on my second day of placement. So someone had been run over by like a huge Hilux ute and probably had multiple fractures and traumas. And so we really needed to get over there in record time. So we had to race over. Lucky for me, in my the boot of my car, I had my clinical clothes. So I really quickly got changed, um, drove over to the, the base and we, we flew over there in record time and landed on the tarmac. Uh, of of the Roxby Downs um, airport, well, airstrip. It's just one small road. Um, the thing is, it was a really hot day. So this is when uh, isn't it hot in Roxby Downs? Uh, Harry? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think regular heat is um, freezing in comparison to how hot it was. It was topping like forty five degrees, I think, in Roxby Downs. Um, this is when the bushfires were happening. Those those terrible bushfires. So it was really really hot. Um, so anyway, we landed and. The thing is, the tarmac is exponentially hotter. It's about 55 plus degrees when we landed. And the thing is, the plane won't actually last that long when when it's being exposed to heat like that. I mean, maybe 10 to 15 minutes tops before the engine won't start. So not only is it an emergency in respect to what the patient's going through, but it's it's an emergency in respect to how time poor we are um, with the engine not potentially not starting once we load it all up. So we had a big time pressure. We needed every, uh, and we needed to be careful as well. So we, we got the patient, we secured them, we put them in, um, you know, in, in a bed, made sure they were nice and safe, popped them into the plane nice and safely, but as effic- efficiently as we possibly could. And um, we went to start the plane and the engine didn't turn over. And we were we were just like our hearts sunk. Then um, we did it again, and the engine thankfully turned over, which is great. Uh, so we we took off and flew away, and you know we were sweating, and not just from the heat, but from this the stress of trying to make sure that we weren't going to be stuck overnight um, with a patient with multiple traumas uh, in the middle of a tarmac, you know, airstrip. So that was phenomenal. But that's that's not where the, the problem stopped, though. We thought we were in the clear. But because of the heat wave that had come, we had a lot of crosswinds happening as well. And when there's a big crosswind, it makes it really difficult to land. And sometimes you need to go and land somewhere else where there are no crosswinds. And the only place that we could have landed again is back at that tarmac that was really Let's hot. Let's just explain what a crosswind is. So a crosswind is yep. when a wind is going across an airstrip, which makes it very difficult to land or to take off. Well, I think it's actually just to land. I think um, taking off is okay. But anyway, yep. I'm not sure. I'm not a pilot. But mm. um, certainly um, if you are trying to land um, uh going north, for example, and there's a really strong wind from the west, um, then that can really present challenges, particularly for a smaller mm. plane. Yeah, Absolutely. And because these planes are so small, they're so um, vulnerable to, to these winds pushing them somewhere else when they're trying to land on a straight road. The thing is, the reason why it's difficult to land uh, and not take off is because we have to put air brakes on and those air brakes slow the plane down so it can land safely, but they also increase, I guess, that vulnerability to those crosswinds. So whenever we tried to, it would push us off 
diagonally or almost, you know, completely off course. So we actually had to land with the air brakes um, only on slightly. So we ended up landing about 50% faster than we usually would with a patient that had multiple traumas. And, and the thing is, it would have been much more dangerous to be stuck overnight waiting for it to cool down. Mm. But, um, you know, we, we thankfully we landed, everything was nice and safe. We got the patient to safety um, and they were treated effectively and they're, they're back on track now, um, followed up with them. But yeah, it was just such a, such a, um, it's what an experience. It sounds like it gave you a real adrenaline rush. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm always heartened to know that um, the pilots that the um, RFDS users have to have extensive experience. I think it's 3,000 hours minimum they have to mm-hmm. have had in the air. But um, they're really, because they are not just landing at a commercial airstrip where there's lighting and fencing and all this sort of stuff, you mm-hmm. have everything from climate and weather events to landing on dirt strips that, you know, has wildlife on it, hopefully not. Um, mm-hmm. No fences, often um, in the dead of night, no lighting. There's all manner of challenges. So I'm my hats are always off to our wonderful pilots if they're Yep. Any of them are listening. We're thinking of you. Oh, um, they're all legends, absolute now, legends. At one point, um, you mentioned to me that um, you had gone out to lunch with a doctor and you'd been surprised by um, that what occurred. Could you tell me about mm. that? Yeah. So, one of the things I guess we we've touched on a little bit is that in uh, as a rural generalist, you get a little bit more time with your patients, maybe five extra minutes, which doesn't sound like much, but those five extra minutes you can spend really exploring um, your patients and really getting to know them like holistically, not just their medical problems, but learning about their family and their friends and their dog and their neighbours and their kids. Um, And they they become, you know, close to you and you become close to them and you really get to know each other and and build a a strong relationship. Um, So when I was at my um, Royal Flying Doctor's Service placement, I think it was midway through the second week, I ended up having lunch with one of the doctors. And where were you located? Uh, so this is in Port Augusta. Okay. So this was in Port Augusta. Went, went and had lunch with one of the doctors um, just, to, just to catch up with them. And the thing is, though, is that that really, that, that extra time that we're able to spend in rural locations really shone through because when I was sitting with them, and we were trying to get to know each other and, and learn about each other. Every, I, I'm not even kidding, Lana, every single person in that cafe walked past, patted, patted this doctor on the back and just wanted to have a full-fledged conversation with him. I, I could not get a word in with him. I couldn't talk to this doctor. I couldn't. His attention was fully, fully on everyone else around him um, because they just wanted to just thank him for the stuff that he's done for them. And say hello and um, catch up on, on things. And yeah, I, d- I just couldn't get a word in at all. Uh, it it's just really goes to show. Harry, yeah. you know, when I was a child, um, hmm. I, uh, we had a family doctor and yep. all of my family had gone to the family doctor and hmm. uh, it, was, it was just the way it was. Everybody, you'd always go to the family doctor because the family doctor knew your whole family history, not just your yep. own, but your mum, your dad, your, your siblings. Uh, sometimes your grandparents and so forth. Um, mm. And it's funny when I compare that now to the health industry that surrounds us because yeah. there's not so much of the family doctor anymore. Um, there's super mm. clinics. You just make an appointment, you pop in, there's e-health records and, mm-hmm. you know, there's sort of like a continuity. They work to have a continuity of care through mm-hmm. um, 
uh, it's just a different system um, and there just doesn't seem to be as much um, personal contact or ongoing continuous care. But that's something yeah. which in rural and remote areas, the Royal Flying Doctor Service ends up servicing sometimes two, three, four, five generations of family on mm -hmm. remote stations or in remote communities um, where they know anyone and everyone in that community and they've been coming out for decades. Um, mm. So it's, it's an interesting thing. It's almost like a shot. It's almost like a part of the past has been brought forward and continues as part of our ongoing service model, which um, did you find that? was very different from what you've experienced in um, metro areas? Absolutely. Uh, both as a patient and as a medical student as well. Um, I, I, you know, Lana, as you said, in, in metropolitan clinics, you know, doctors absolutely want to make connections and they absolutely, absolutely want to have that continuity of care. But I think just because there are the, the population's growing and growing and growing and the demand for health services is increasing so much, you know, the, the capacity to actually be able to have those genuine conversations is is disappearing and everything becomes quite transactional. So patients will come in and they'll get their scripts and they'll leave or they might get some quick health advice or preventative health advice. And and that's all that you can manage with such a high workload as a, as a doctor. And that's all as a busy person you can manage as a, as a patient. You've got to go back to work. You've, you, those sorts of things. And you're right, in, in the country... We, we have, we're blessed to be able to do that. We're, we're blessed to still be able to hold those conversations and find and talk to generations upon generations of family members. It's, there's a clear difference. And to, to anyone out there that, that wants to, is curious about working rurally, but is worried about feeling isolated, it's it's anything but because you're really being out, you're able to connect with all the community members as as a community member and as a a doctor as well, or as any any medical staff, um, it's it's anything but. You you can connect with people and you don't feel isolated. No way. That's fabulous. All mm. right, so I have to ask you. You have a long career ahead of you, Harry. Mm. Um, you're in your thirties. You've got yeah. We should see you at least forty years um, working <laughs> around in rural and remote Australia. So, do you think you'll ever at some point end up working for the Royal Flying Doctor Service? Uh, that's what my ultimate goal is. Absolutely. Um, once I finish off medicine, uh, the degree, and work as a junior medical officer in, in some hospitals, I'm really hoping to get the right qualifications and uh, apply for the Royal Flying Doctors. It's such a great service for everyone involved, for everyone that works there, for everyone that receives the service. It's, it's my calling. It's where I want to go. Absolutely. You'll see me there. All right. Well, you have to give me a call and we'll do an interview at that point. How exciting. <laughs> we'll do a follow-up. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Harry. It's been really good. Not a problem, Lana. Thank you so much for having me. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.